0: This is the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Hey now. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. Dr. Jana. Yes. How you doing? I'm well. Welcome to episode 36 of the Science of Sex podcast. So birth control is the subject today, right?
1: We're going to talk about how and whether hormonal birth control in particular has the power, if you will, to affect women's interest in their partners,
2: Mm -hmm. like long-term
1: partners, and whether it influences their relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. We have Dr. Patrick Jern, I think Mm -hmm. is how you pronounce his name. He tried to tell us how to pronounce yeah. his name, but we may be fucking it up. We so had I don't trouble know. with
0: his pronunciation guide. So yeah. that's that yeah. just supposed to show you how <laughs> tricky his name is to pronounce.
1: Yeah, so stay tuned for, <laughs> for his actual name that yeah. he's going to pronounce maybe yes. <laughs> in a little bit.
0: Let's hope so. We
1: have this Finnish professor. I think he's our first Finn.
0: Yes, he is.
1: Yeah. If you're show. scoring at
0: home with the countries. I know we've had mm-hmm. a bunch in Canada. Yeah. We had the UK. We had Scotland. We had we had Ireland.
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. We had
0: a lot of those United Kingdom. uh, Yeah, we've had Australia. Australia. We've had New Zealand. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now we're heading to Finland, Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. It was one of the Scandinavian countries, right? Mm -hmm. Look at that.
1: Well done. Wow, (laughs) you paid attention in
2: geography. One of us sound like
0: we went to college. (laughs) All right. The science of sex, foreplay. All right, Doctor Jana. We talk about sex on the show, which is fitting since it is called. The science of sex. We do, but one of the things we
1: don't really talk about is something a little more
0: intimate, or I guess a little more sweeter.
1: Yeah, kissing. (laughs) We've. I'm sure we've we've talked about kissing, but we haven't. Kissing is part of sex. Yeah. Some people even when you when you ask people to define sex, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no universal agreement on exactly which kinds of acts fall into the definition of sex. So there are some acts that most people will agree on. Like if you ask about penile-vaginal intercourse, right. you know, most people will agree that that's sex. But beyond that, lots of different things that people disagree on. And so kissing, when you ask, the college students, there would be something like 5% of the student population who'll say that kissing counts as sex. Right. So there you go. And
0: then you also have cheating, right? If, if you <laughs> if you kiss someone, is that considered cheating, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of people would consider it cheating, and maybe some people won't consider it cheating, or they might consider it the lesser infraction than, say, penile-vaginal sex or okay. oral sex or something like that. So. All
0: right. Well, Dr. John, <laughs> a new survey asked people how many people they've kissed in their lives.
1: Okay. The results
0: are kind of interesting. Now, before I go into this, Do you have any idea how many people you might have kissed in your life? I don't need a number, but do you have an idea in your head? I do. Okay. Do Do I? Yeah, I do. Do (laughs) you? I Uh, mean, yeah,
1: one. All right, stop that. You're the more interesting one. It's easy when it's one. You don't have a lot of counting to do. Again,
0: I was not a virgin when I met my significant other. Okay, five. Anyway, 5% (laughs) of people have never kissed anyone, and that includes 19% of people between 18 and 24, which is a little... You know, you think of it, 18, to 24, you think by, like, high school or something like that,
1: you would have kissed somebody. And basically, one in five young people, 18 to 24-year-olds, have not kissed anyone. Right. 20%. Wow. Okay, that's a little higher than I would have expected. Yeah. I gotta say, you know, that we know that that's about the number of people who haven't had sex hmm. by then, haven't had, like, penile vaginal right. or penile anal or something, you know, more, more. Advanced, if yes. you will, yeah. more involved, but interesting.
0: Yeah. So, YouGov asked seven thousand six hundred and twenty-three U.S. adults. Okay, so that's a pretty nice size sample, and,
1: and, and yeah, that's a good sample.
0: The results are weighted to be haha, representative of the U.S. population.
2: Wow. So, as You've they say, found
1: me a representative <laughs> study. It's close
2: enough, as they say.
1: <laughs> okay, it's not. It's not a published study, but it's a UGov study, which does some statistical. Is in there to claim that, to try to get to a representative sample. Okay. All right.
0: So let's run the spectrum. Okay. 4% of people have only kissed one person. Okay. That's one side of the spectrum.
1: So wait, no. One side of the spectrum is the 5% who've never kissed.
0: Then you have 4% of people who have only kissed one person.
1: Okay. And if
0: you want to swing that over to the other side, Uh 15% have kissed
1: more than 50 people. 15% 15% have kissed more than 50 people. Okay, okay.
0: Without casting aspersions, I have a feeling you might be in that 15%. Sure. Sure, right?
1: I've definitely not.
0: <laughs> you have definitely yeah. not kissed, uh, uh, what is it, one person. You've done more than- Definitely more than one. More than one. <laughs>
1: more than one. <laughs> Definitely more than two.
0: Yes. <laughs> I mean,
1: and, we're not going to keep counting. No,
0: no, we're not going to need that.
1: And men are more likely
0: than women to say they've kissed more than 50 people.
1: Mm-hmm. No, so no, no. so no. I like that. I like your honesty, Dr. Shana. <laughs> not surprising. <laughs> but, but wait, so 15% is actually quite low. I'm looking at these data now, and it seems like there's a big percentage of people, what is it, 23% who say that they're not sure or something other than whatever the options were, which was, you know, zero, one, two to four, yep. five to 10, more than 50. So I don't know. I, I wonder if the if the not sure, the 23%, which is a quarter of yeah. the sample, would fall under the more than, more 50, than 50, 50, or yeah. are they less than 50 and just really not sure? Or and could and be- what's other, like, y- what's other other. We're talking about numbers. There's no yeah,
0: other. Yeah, that's true. Well, you got to call you Gov. <laughs> I didn't put that together for uh, them.
2: Okay,
1: but okay.
0: I, I think what it may basically means is they've never really kept count or kept track or maybe they've lived a long life and they're, just like, mm-hmm. they're like, hey, listen, I have mm-hmm. no an idea or how right, many people like, I've kissed. So with people kissing, I mean, I'm trying to think as a kid, kissing was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. But do people
1: nowadays care about kissing?
0: Like, you know, as you get to an adult, is kissing important to you, Dr. Jana?
1: It's important to me, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm just me. You're just you, yeah. <laughs> is it important to you? I think so. I think kissing is mm-hmm. kind
0: of a cool thing. <laughs>
2: it's a cool
1: thing. Like you know what well, I mean? No, I th- it is. It is a very. It's a very intimate thing. It can be a very intimate thing. In fact, you will sometimes find people who, you know, these. The, I think, sort of the iconic uh, pretty woman reference. Not on
0: lips or anything like that. Yeah, Yeah, yeah.
1: that you don't kiss uh, with a sex worker or something because it's too intimate. Or some couples who are swingers or in some sort of an open relationship, some of them have rules against kissing others, whereas some other people might have rules against having full-on penetrative sex with others. And both of those are ways to kind of limit the intimacy that people might have with these other partners.
0: That's funny. We have talked about open relationships before, and mm-hmm. I, obviously you were a PhD in mm-hmm. casual sex and all that stuff. I, we never have discussed this before, but mm-hmm. there are parameters in open relationships of about
1: course. kissing? Well, it, there can be. There can be. No,
0: no, I'm, I'm uh, gonna saying a blanket it, it statement. It depends
1: on the couple. But you've
0: seen that, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. That's so funny. Yeah.
1: it's. I, I don't think it's very common. I certainly haven't seen it super commonly. Yeah. I've seen other rules a lot more use that that particular one but yeah i've i've heard of that happening for sure so yeah there's something there's something very intimate and you can tell from a kiss you you know people v- very often will feel like you can tell how good of a lover mm. someone is going to be based on how they kiss and it's also about compatibility what i think is a good kisser might not be the same as what you think is a good kisser mm. you could kiss the exact same person and have a very different experience depending on what our Sort of style of kissing yeah. is how much tongue we want to use, yeah. and how, how much saliva is involved. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They're
0: biting or right, anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. And and so there's an aspect of compatibility. There's an aspect of smell, right? Also, that can tell you a lot what their breath smells like and and, uh, also some, some kind of pheromonal uh, Hmm. exchanges here that can tell you whether it's a, it's even subconsciously, like obviously the smell can be very conscious. Like, Oh, this smells not so good or Oh, this actually tastes and smells good. But there are probably also some unconscious uh, aspects of how compatible Hmm. are we chemically speaking that you can tell by the kiss and I think if people really focus on kissing, that can be very sensual. And if you don't kind of think of it just as a something to get through quickly uh, yeah. on the way, just to get out of the way. Yeah, to <laughs> something more more involved. Mm. But I think you're right that very often when we we're kids, initially that's kind of all you can do. Oh we
0: did, you
2: know. Right? Keep and it so, outside the pants, you yeah, know.
1: <laughs> there are all these limits yeah. to the other activities. So you just spend a lot of time kissing. just making out and kissing. And with adults, if you don't have those limitations, you might get through that stage faster and then not focus too much on it. But I think it can definitely Add to the quality of the experience. Add a lot of passion because kissing can be very passionate, right? Yeah. It can be very and very intimate. Your faces sure. are right there. You're, you can be looking into each other's eyes yeah. while you're doing it, and um, so yeah, I think
0: it's awesome. You know, it's uh, one thing. I didn't stop you before before we get to our guest on. You actually made another pop culture reference. You referenced Pretty Woman. Which is, I mean, you have come a long way. On, I'm
2: not, R- I mean, it's
1: a movie. <laughs> I watch movies. Yeah, for, I know. Movies I watch. I
0: understand that. but it's, it's, I don't it's, watch
1: all your TV shows and stuff.
0: No, but hey, listen, I'm proud of you. They you could work that into the show. So <laughs> let's kiss our guest hello and let's get started, huh?
1: He's not in the studio, though. How are we going to kiss him?
0: It's going to be a, uh, what do you call a- that? A figurative kiss like oh, because he's finished kiss? like finished they don't they do the kiss on each cheek or something like that
1: i'm not sure i actually have not been to finland that's one of the what it's one of the like five st- uh, countries in europe that i have not yet been to all
0: right so we'll have two questions for him we'll ask him how to pronounce his name uh-huh. and if Jana is welcome in finland
1: <laughs> <laughs> and if she is if she can kiss him all right and where okay maybe maybe we're not gonna yeah go, let's stop yeah, right yeah, now yeah. okay
2: the science of sex goes deeper
1: so, earlier this year, a new study published in the Evolution and Human Behavior Journal found that a favorite effect that people have been thinking was true might not be true. Ooh, are we going to debunk something? We might de- debunk something, Ooh, yeah. Nice. And that something has to do with hormonal birth control and how whether you're on it when you start dating someone mm-hmm. and then you get off it or vice versa, if so basically if your hormonal birth control status changes over the course of a relationship with, with a man, right. if this is all heterosexual research, that that might affect negatively your relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction and your attraction to that partner compared to people who have either been consistently using or consistently not, not using, using okay. hormonal birth control with that same partner. And now there's a new study that says this might all be not true.
0: So, past studies, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure we'll get to, Mm -hmm. say that there was some Mm -hmm. sort of effect with these hormone birth controls. Exactly. okay.
1: Great. Yeah. I mean, I'd tell my students at NYU that this was a real effect and, you know, something that they might consider when choosing their partners, their long-term partners. Okay.
0: Sounds like we should probably get a scientist who did this study on.
1: Yes. And we do, in fact, have (laughs) (laughs) the uh, lead author of this study whose name... Well, the American version of his name is Patrick Jern. Okay. That's not the... Finnish Finnish slash Swedish version of his name, but I'm not even going to attempt because I did and I failed miserably.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we're just going
1: to call him Patrick Jern. And Dr. Patrick Jern is currently an associate professor of applied clinical psychology at Abo Academy University in Turku, Finland. He has previously worked as a researcher at universities in Sweden and Australia and is also a licensed clinical psychologist and holds a a degree in sex therapy. Dr. Jern's research has focused on human sexuality and sex-related problems, including the etiology and treatment of sexual dysfunctions, how hormonal contraceptives affect relationships, which we'll talk about today, and testing evolutionary hypotheses relating to mate choice and retention. He has authored more than 80 scientific publications and is currently investigating whether network models, which is basically the idea that symptoms cause and maintain other symptoms, whether this can be used to improve treatment interventions for sexual problems. Dr. Patrick Jern, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Tell us, how did you end up studying hormonal birth control and how it might affect relationships?
3: This is actually uh, not what I spent most of my time on. So it was uh, a colleague of mine, Brendan Zeech, uh, at the University of Queensland. So he just, uh, I spoke with him uh, and he alerted me to this paper by. Craig Roberts and others that appeared in Psychological Science, which was one of these papers we ended up doing a replication study later on, uh, on later on. And we didn't make any specific plans about doing work in this area. Uh, I just read the paper and uh, I thought it was uh, A fascinating hypothesis, uh, this with hormonal conceptive uh, congruency and incongruency. Basically, uh, uh, the dynamics behind how hormonal contraceptives can affect the the quality of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about the pill, basically.
1: The pill and the the hormonal ID. Anything that has hormones, anything that regulates or or prevents babies from, from happening using hormones. Got it. Now, we haven't actually talked much on the show about hormonal birth control, especially in terms of how it might affect you know attractions or preferences or relationship outcomes. and and you know obviously, your your study is is an attempt to replicate some of these findings uh, from prior research. So tell us a little bit about what we know from the literature before your study came onto the scene about how hormonal birth control might have any effect on some of these things.
3: So there were, A lot of studies around just looking at how hormones influence women's mate preferences. Uh, So there were a ton of studies showing, for example, that heterosexual women's mate preferences track uh, the ovulatory cycle, so the menstrual cycle. Uh, And there was evidence suggesting that during uh, or when a woman is fertile, she prefers or tends to prefer more masculine men. So, uh, more masculine faces, deeper voices, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And there were similar, uh, studies showing that birth control or hormonal birth control also alters, uh, the mate preference of women. So this is basically the starting point. And then there were a bunch of studies looking into if and how hormonal birth control affects, uh, Sexual satisfaction and also general relationship satisfaction. Uh, but I think these studies uh, or different studies produced uh, different results. So, in some studies, they found that women who are on homo- hormonal uh, birth control tend to be happier. Whereas other studies showed the opposite, happier with their uh,
1: partners in their relationships, y- yes, not just generally happier, much. right?
3: And that's actually an interesting question: why that is? Uh, because, yeah, that was going to uh, be my next question: why? Would, yeah, so this, it, this it's this be possible that, like, assuming that these studies are true, so right. there was just a couple months ago, uh, Ben Jones at the University of Glasgow and his group have uh, produced a couple studies, uh, pretty much debunking the whole idea that women's uh, masculinity preferences are shifting as a function of menstrual cycle and... uh,
1: Or hormonal birth control.
3: Or hormonal birth control.
1: Mm. So there's been some some studies finding no effects and some studies finding effects. But let's say that these effects were real. What were the explanations for why hormones whether because of regular shifts over the course of the cycle or because of hormonal birth control or any other reason, I guess, why you might be changing your hormonal status. Why should that affect how satisfied you are with your partner?
3: I think there could be a pretty big cultural effect. When hormonal birth control or the pill first arrived, this was a massive boon to women because uh, it was basically the first time where you could get... uh, total control or pretty much total control, uh, over your own reproduction. Right. Today, it's hard to imagine a time where, uh, there was no birth control for women, uh, (laughs) but I think, uh, in studies conducted in cultures where birth control is more rare, I think you could find, uh, an effect where you see that uh, women are happy just to have birth control available. Uh, mm. Where on the other hand, uh, now that birth control has been uh, around for decades and it's no big thing, uh, so in the European Union, you're seeing a, a, a pretty sharp decline in uh, women using birth control. So younger women are uh, quite reluctant to get on the pill uh, because of, uh, well, they don't want to use hormones or put any unnecessary hormones in their bodies Mm -hmm. uh, but also that a lot of women do experience uh, unpleasant side effects from hormones uh, to varying degrees so i think a study conducted now in a say developed western society at least you would perhaps find the opposite effect where a lot of women are skeptical towards Using mm. hormonal contraceptives much more so compared to in the 1960s or 70s,
1: right? But that's not what the explanation put forth when we would find some of these effects between birth control use and and relationship satisfaction was. Was it?
3: Uh, no. So that would that, that could explain that. Uh, I mean, if you're really happy to have birth control. Uh, period. (laughs) So that might be that you're happier in your relationship because you're not scared to get pregnant all the time. Mm. And that could be a real thing before Mm. uh, birth control. So the replication study that we did uh, is looking at the, uh, it's called the congruency hypothesis. The congruency hypothesis arose from the confusion about that some studies show that hormonal contraceptives improve relationship quality and others show the opposite. So to make sense of this, they got this idea that it might not be about being on or off the pill. Instead, it might be if you stop or start using the pill while you're in the relationship. And that's based on the idea that women prefer a different kind of partner uh, depending on what sort of hormones she's influenced by. So the idea is that if you start dating someone and you're not on the pill, and then you start dating and the relationship becomes serious, and then you start using the pill, you might not like the same person you're seeing anymore.
1: How were the hormones supposed to affect being on the pill versus not being on the pill? How was that supposed to change what you found attractive?
3: Well, that was unclear because some studies show that it was supposed to make you happier in your relationship. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there were also studies showing that you were more miserable. Mm -hmm. To make sense of that ambiguity, there was uh, like, that's kind of the starting point of the uh, hormonal contraceptive uh, congruency hypothesis.
1: Right. So you basically investigated the hormonal contraceptive congruency about this is and that's saying if when you met somebody if you yeah you were on the pill when you met them and then you're still on the pill so your your use is consistent or the other way around if Mm -hmm. you were not using it when you met somebody and you're still not using it a few years down the line then um that that should somehow be different than if you we're on the pill when you met someone and then stopped taking the pill or vice versa.
3: Exactly. So the idea is that regardless of uh, whether you're on or off the pill at the moment, uh, you're asked if you're happy in your relationship. So that should have less bearing on your uh, happiness than if you've started or stopped after the initiation of the relationship. So basically, if you start or stop, after starting seeing someone so that's incongruent use and if you are either say an always or never user so that's congruent use mm-hmm. which means that you have either not been using or using consistently throughout the entire relationship
1: why should this be the case why should this incongruence of the hormonal birth control use make a difference as you were saying in the beginning that you are more likely when when you're fertile to be attracted to people who are, say, have more dominant features. And if you were on on hormonal birth control, which mimics pregnancy to some extent, right, that you might not have that interest in, in dominance. And then if you get off the birth control, then you're like, oh, my partner is not dominant enough. I want someone who's more dominant or vice versa. Is that, is that the explanation?
3: Kind of. So it's basically uh, saying that if you pharmacologically induce hormones, you're gonna alter the uh, mate preferences of a woman. Mm-hmm. So while you're the entire time, while you're under the influence of the pill, you're going to prefer a different type of person than you would if you were not on the pill. Mm. So that's basically, uh, whoever you'd fall in love with when you're say off the pill, it's not the same kind of guy you would fall in love with when you're on the pill. that's crazy i mean that almost sounds like like a
0: fantasy novel or something like that we're living in a sci-fi world where the pill can control who you're falling for that's that's bizarre
3: yeah and it's obviously important to remember that even if there was strong evidence that this is a thing uh, Mm. that the hormonal congruency hypothesis is true it's still a pretty small effect
1: yeah that's that's a a very good point
3: one or two percent of the entire variance of the variable you use to measure relationship satisfaction.
1: Okay, that made absolutely no sense to Joe, yep. whose face is like, huh, yeah. what did he just yeah.
3: say? Yeah, she likes to make fun yeah, of the so, faces but, I make. It, 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 no, it, no, it I'm not making fun. very little of the... Uh, Whole happiness that you experience with your relationship so it's a very small effect okay
2: yeah
1: yeah this is this is one of those cases where i think it's important to make a difference a distinction between statistical significance like an effect that's statistically yes. significant versus that's practically relevant so exactly and how much
3: and yeah. e- even if this was true
1: mm-hmm.
3: uh, i would say that it's uh not of any, say, clinical significance.
1: Right. So it's a small effect. Like okay. you can find it yes. in a large sample. If you do all these statistical analysis, you can find, let's say that you know some of the previous studies had found that there was some difference mm. in your relationship satisfaction with your yeah. partner if you were congruent versus incongruent. But that yeah. difference was quite small. So it's not like, exactly. oh, if you were incongruent, that means you're going to be miserable <laughs> once you get off the pill with right. your current partner. And then if you stay congruent, then you're going to be ecstatically happy with your partner. It's not. Precisely. <laughs> like people tend to <laughs> interpret these, yeah. these statistical significance findings as, very, as either or and as yeah. massive oh, yeah. effects. And, and it's that's a tricky not the
3: thing case. because if you, uh, say, start talking, say, when you're uh, speaking publicly, if you talk in terms of statistics you're going to be perceived as so boring that nobody's going to want to listen yeah. to you anyway. So.
2: <laughs> Patrick, that's right, one of those
0: yeah. that you see the mainstream media would get you saying that somewhere and then mm-hmm. the headline would be birth control affects the way you love people. You know what or I mean? Ruins
2: yeah. your relationship. These, uh,
0: or yeah.
3: I can't remember if it was in... Conju- so we replicated three different studies and I can't remember if it was the one published in Psychological Science or the one in uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of uh, Sciences oh, okay. of the US. Mm. Uh, but there were... Uh, pretty big articles in leading mainstream media, such as uh, Time Magazine and The Guardian. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because uh, and, they yes.
1: want these kinds of headlines. It sounds also very practical. It can give you practical advice. Mm. You know, oh, Should yeah. you or should you not be on birth control when you're meeting your partner or whatever it yeah. is? It, it has this very, very mass kind of media appeal.
3: Oh, yeah. And it's not un- inconceivable at all that somebody would make a decision about using birth control mm-hmm. or not based on right. uh, what they read in, say, mainstream media that are generally perceived as very well, believable. Reliable, sure. Right,
1: right. Yeah, and as you said, some of these papers that had found some evidence for the uh, hormonal birth control congruency hypothesis, they were published in pretty big, important, high-quality journals, right? Exactly. Highly respectable uh, journals. So,
3: were, And so I would say, like, before we did this replication study, uh, which found uh, no support for the congruency hypothesis. So, uh,
0: spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. That,
3: okay, sorry.
2: That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, now.
3: we kind of. I kind of had a feeling that's where you okay. were going, Patrick. <laughs> uh, but in any case, at, at the time when we uh, uh, before we did this study, I would have said that uh, anyone uh, with a solid ability to evaluate scientific evidence would have had no choice but to draw the conclusion that this is a robust effect. Mm. So you have a lot of things. You have three different studies. uh,
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, tell us a little, yeah, what is the Uh, what is the evidence that we had up to your study that this may or may not be true?
3: Yeah, so to my knowledge, there were uh, three studies. And the first was published in 2013. And that looked at jealousy and not uh, relationship satisfaction and then shortly after that within a year or so there were one paper in psychological science which
2: i believe journal? i'm not
3: exaggerating if i say it's considered the best empirical psychology journal yeah and that's then probably a, true sorry <laughs> one of them yeah and all came to the same conclusion that the uh that the effect is real
1: meaning that
3: that the hormonal contraceptive uh, congruency hypothesis is real uh, or supported by evidence
1: so that the women who either
3: quit yes either stop or start using uh, hormonal contraceptives uh, are more likely to be miserable in their relationships Wow!
1: <laughs> than the yeah. women who were either never using or always using birth control
3: yeah or at least for the duration of the current right. relationship right right
1: anyone who's been reading the literature and following the yeah. literature would have had no no option but to conclude that this was a real effect and in fact like that was that's that's what i was thinking that's what i thought was happening i would tell my students that at at NYU like this is what up until your study came along i'd be like so there's this effect it's not a very big effect but you know, something to consider. And then your study came along. I was like, oh, maybe that's not true.
2: Yeah. So
3: (laughs) so this was actually, I gave it as a project to a couple of students. Mm -hmm. Uh, This, uh, because this is not in my uh, primary area of research, but I, I found the, just like you, I found the hypothesis very compelling and I, mm. uh, I thought it was a beautiful idea. <laughs> and I have to admit, I was disappointed that, uh, we were
1: <laughs> that you didn't not able to replicate it. it. Oh.
3: I mean, it probably would have got less attention had we been able to replicate everything. Mm. I mean, our study. So, I mean, in terms of, uh, visibility of my own research, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose it's good, but it's. I still think it's a beautiful idea, and it's um, and it's a shame it didn't work out
0: that <laughs> way. All right, so before we get to your study, those previous studies that you talked about, were they large mm-hmm. samples? Because I know Dr. John is always big about nationally representative scale. She gives me all this gaga well, stuff
3: like I'm that. Sh-
1: they were not nationally representative. <laughs> but but- so how, how many people were, were talking? They
3: were not that large. I think the first one on jealousy was 130, 140 women Jeez. or so, and the largest had about Three hundred and fifty, three hundred and sixty, something like that. Participants. Okay. Uh, and the third one uh, is a bit different from the other two, so that's a longitudinal study. So then the statistical power doesn't come solely from the number of right. participants, but also from Time. the number of observations from every participant.
2: Right.
3: Uh, and so this but was actually. I think it's safe to say that they were all underpowered.
0: What is underpowered?
3: Oh, mean? oh sorry. <laughs> like, uh, so they, they lost their ability to fly. <laughs> participants to uh, really robustly look at so small effects. Because the smaller the effect is, the larger the sample has to be to Detect. reliably detected
0: yeah right. it's amazing that that got out so large with such a small sample is, is that common patrick that something that that small could leave such a lasting impact until your study came along
3: well yeah scientists are people too so uh, obviously <laughs> there's going to be a preference for stuff that is sexy or innovative or like a cool idea yeah. even if mm-hmm. you haven't tested it that rigorously it's gonna get more attention and you know you want to believe if yeah. it's uh, a cool idea so i suppose that's uh, behind it but also when you do something for the first time like how would you know how big a sample you need right yeah, so i don't think a, the if it's uh, a big
1: effect 150 people or 250 people would be enough this actually the sample size is not being very large in the previous studies it was w- one reason why you decided to do this study as a as a replication and then yes. also as, as uh, there, there have been all of these kind of replicability issues that have been raised in psychology, with a lot of different effects that have been kind of cool, just like this one that people have have found and published, ended up not yeah. b- not getting replicated by other teams or by uh, larger samples and all that. And so, there's been a push toward trying to replicate uh, in in yes. larger and better ways some of these cool, interesting effects that psychologists have found yeah what else was a was an impetus to to do this replication study
3: well i would say uh that was it so this was at a time when say the replication crisis in psychology really became a big thing all right i'm gonna stop you there what's what what, what
0: is the replication crisis
3: psychologists or researchers in psychology or behavioral science in general started realizing that a lot of the stuff that's published out there, which is considered reliable evidence, actually doesn't hold up. So if you try to replicate the same study, you don't find the same results. It's a
1: pretty powerful, I guess, uh, indication of, of how getting excited about novel findings and not really trying to, to replicate them very rigorously can lead us astray, right? And there is this pull in in psychology and publishing and individuals to just find and publish new stuff and new interesting findings and there's been less incentive to try to replicate these interesting findings and see if that was a f- fluke or actually uh, a real effect. Okay, so that was th- that was a that was a big important reason to replicate this especially <laughs> since it's yeah. so intrinsically interesting to people and they might end up making decisions about their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on on these these findings uh, in the relatively small sample sizes. And then there's another issue that th- the small sample size is connected to, and that's the fact that it's not necessarily just consistent versus inconsistent use. They're act- not just two groups here. There are four groups that we're yes. technically talking about.
3: Tell, exactly. us, tell us a little
1: more about that.
3: So if we first uh, consider the two groups, and these are the groups that have been tested in the studies we try to replicate. So that's just uh, congruent and incongruent users. But the congruent user group actually consists of two kinds of people. So there's those who have consistently used the pill, which means they're on the pill right now as they participate in the study. And then there's uh, those who have not been on the pill at any stage uh, in the relationship. And those are obviously not on the pill when they participate in the study. And the same thing in the incongruent group. So you have uh, the women who have stopped using the pill. So they used it when they first met their partner, but then quit it uh, at some point in the relationship and the other way around. So women who were not on birth control when they started dating and then started using uh, afterwards. So in both the congruent and incongruent groups, you have people who are using and not using at the Uh, the same time and then these guys can be differently distributed uh, across the samples
1: these gals so
3: yeah (laughs) so basically uh if you have a sample size of 120 people in total and even if these are evenly distributed among the groups when you divide it into four groups you only have 30 persons per group And then if you have an unequal distribution of women who are using the pill at the time of study participation, uh, this can manifest as, say, incongruent group consisting of only four women who are not on the pill right now and a ton of women who are on the Mm -hmm. pill right now.
1: So they can skew the results.
3: Yes, Mm -hmm. because if there is a main effect uh, of hormonal contraceptives, affect uh, whatever you're measuring directly, then uh, it becomes problematic for these kind of group comparisons.
1: Okay, this might've been a little too too statisticky, so I'm gonna try, try and Translate? summarize yeah. it summarize <laughs> <laughs> briefly. Yeah, but that basically, it's pretty
3: difficult to explain <laughs> to uh, non- briefly, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but basically, because you have these different kinds of consistent and inconsistent use, and there might be differences Within those two groups, so the the consistent users might be different from the consistent non-users, and yes. and if you have different kind of numbers of these of these people within within the group, if you just com- do the comparison consistent versus inconsistent, you might not find some you know, effects, or it might might skew the data. So in Precisely. your in your study, you had a much bigger sample than the previous studies. So you had almost a thousand. Finnish women, yeah. who are all in long-term relationships, all hetero-relationships, and they were not uh, pregnant, they were not going undergoing any other hormonal treatments to kind of keep things simple, and you did have enough people in the sample to really look separately at these four groups and not just the two groups. So you measured, you measured stuff that was measured in these previous studies as well, right?
3: Yeah, so we had pretty much... Uh identical and exact or or like procedurally identical replications of two of the studies. So the one on jealousy and the psych science paper that looked on sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. Uh, And then the longitudinal study came out only afterwards or after we started the data collection and project. So we were not aware of that. So that's not procedurally identical, Mm -hmm. but it happened so that we had collected data that could be used to at least indirectly test the same hypothesis as they were testing.
1: Okay. And so we alluded to this already in the conversation, but what did you find?
3: We did not find any support for the uh, hormonal contraceptive congruency hypothesis. We debunked the main point of the previous three studies. Mm -hmm. There were no differences between uh, women who had started or stopped taking the pill in terms of uh, sexual satisfaction, relationship satisfaction, or jealousy when you compared these to women who had not gone on or off the pill during their relationships.
1: There were no differences whatsoever. No group differences. And this controlled for things like age and relationship duration and whether they had kids or not. Yeah. So these other so things that may have the influenced. Basically the same stuff
3: that they controlled for in the other studies, yeah.
0: So that's it. So you, that was it? <laughs> it All was right, cool. Well, that's bummer, not it. Anyway. <laughs> nice talking to <laughs> you, Patrick. <laughs> Have a great
3: life. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, so there were no there were no difference between congruence versus incongruence. Any other differences? Were there differences uh, well, the differences within the
3: congruence? So basically where we saw any effects, it tended to be between women who had consistently used the pill and women who had never been on the pill. Uh, who was and these more would satisfied. both be considered congruent users, right? Uh, and we don't have any real idea why this is, so we can only speculate. Who was, who uh, but who was more satisfied?
1: Be, who was more satisfied?
3: Those who are on the pill were more uh, satisfied, but also more jealous.
1: Those were who were on the pill when both they started and still were more satisfied in their relationship and sexual satisfaction than those yes. who were never on the pill, uh, but they were also more that, jealous.
3: Yeah. Okay. They're also more jealous, yeah. yeah. Uh, but one you... thing that has to be considered is that uh, we used two different measures of both sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And none of these effects, so if we say find an effect on sexual satisfaction, we only find it with one of the measures, but not the other.
1: Okay, uh, so this might not be a very robust effect is is what you're saying,
3: but it was also so the reason we included uh, different measures of relationship satisfaction for example was that in the studies we tried to replicate they had used a non-validated a measure that hadn't been empirically proven to be robust Mm. so for example relationship satisfaction was uh, was measured with two questions i think they were how happy are you with your partner's intelligence and with his financial provision?
2: That's a and very obviously uh, you
3: narrow
1: definition of relationship <laughs> satisfaction. Yeah, <so> it's possible <laughs> to
3: be both rich, smart, and still be a bastard.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and be completely incompatible as a, yes, a long term yes. partner. <laughs> but okay.
3: <laughs> so I think they'd use data that were not collected mm. specifically for this purpose. Mm. Uh, which is pretty common in science, obviously. Mm, Right, right, right.
1: So basically you're saying you're not sure that that this main effect that you found in terms of just use versus non-use of hormonal birth control is valid or robust? or.
3: So we found a main effect. So those who were on the pill were more jealous than those who were not on the pill. So Mm -hmm. this is not talking about congruency at all. Mm -hmm. We found a main effect of using the pill on jealousy. Again, this effect is small. But given that we have a pretty big sample, mm. uh, I would be You're kind of cautiously optimistic okay. that this <laughs> is uh, this effect might be real.
1: And how would you explain that? Why should women on the pill be more jealous than yeah. women not on the pill and maybe even more satisfied in the relationship?
3: Uh, so again, I'm going to have to speculate. Uh, right. So, I mean, the easiest explanation would obviously be that it's uh, a pharmacologically induced effect uh,
2: mm-hmm.
3: so that... Say, a lot of uh, female friends of mine, uh, when they have described their experiences of being on the pill, uh, so say the common uh, or most common side effects they report is uh, becoming much more emotional
2: mm-hmm.
3: and also lower sexual desire. Mm-hmm. So it might be that uh, you get emotional more
2: Lost easily, mm-hmm. and
3: uh, so a, a lot of people report that they kind of start crying more easily. Mm. So it could be that you actually are more prone to perceive things as threats. Right.
1: Right. If
3: you're uh, in a more emotionally vulnerable state due to this. Uh, So that's possible. But Mm -hmm. it's also possible that, say, the kind of women who choose to go on the pill are for uh, some other reason also more prone to be jealous. So it might have something to do with personality or... Mm social sexuality, that means uh, how, uh, or say your willingness to have uncommitted sex,
2: mm-hmm.
3: basically. So these are examples of third variables with some kind of potential to explain this. But I really wouldn't know. Uh, it would have to be studied more More Right, thoroughly. so this could be
1: a causal kind of relationship with uh, hormonal birth control actually causing Higher jealousy and perhaps higher sexual satisfaction, <laughs> but also could be that it's could just be different kinds of women yeah. are yeah. choosing to to use birth control or not use birth control. Yes, um, and that's and th- that's why we're seeing these differences.
3: So, but again, the uh, jealousy effect is also pretty small. Mm. So, I wouldn't. Tattoo it to my forehead for replication. <laughs> yeah, please. don't do that. That would look weird.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> or you wouldn't get women off birth control because they're being too jealous. Yeah, yeah, that's,
0: yeah. That's, that's not such a that's such a, such a bad side effect. They'll be like, you
1: know what? I could
0: yeah, I yeah. can live with jealousy.
1: <laughs> well, maybe you could. I could not. No, tell. not you. No, no. I know. Don't increase my jealousy. I know. You have zero jealousy. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't know what to do with it if (laughs) if, if all all of a sudden I started feeling it. I did want to ask this, and I know you you looked at it in your paper. There are different types of hormonal birth control. Some have progesterone only, and some have a mix of estrogen and progesterone. And so very often people will ask, well, is that making a difference?
3: Yeah, and we tested that as well, but we found no difference between the different kinds of Uh, hormonal contraceptives they used. So Uh, so we did analysis where we included any kind of hormonal contraceptive. And then we did analysis where we included only the pill, but both kind of pills. And then we also separated the progesterone uh, only pills from the combination pills.
1: And no no difference in results whatsoever. So do you think case closed, the hormonal contraception congruency hypothesis has been a debunked myth?
3: I would uh, say that if there's anything to learn from the replication crisis we just spoke about, it's that you should never be certain. (laughs) But I would say that I think it's safe to say that this is the most convincing evidence out there at this moment regarding this particular phenomenon. So yeah, and also given that a bunch of studies that came out pretty recently, just looking at these things that have been taken for granted for more than a decade, that women's uh, mate preferences track uh, the menstrual cycle and also uh, appear to be influenced by hormones. So this has also been largely debunked in uh, extremely rigorously uh, performed Mm -hmm. studies. If I were a betting man, I would (laughs) bet money on that it's probably debunked Uh, the
1: way you're reading the literature. You also think uh, the evidence is, is stronger on the, on sort of the, the effects of hormonal of hormones on, on mate preferences that, that that's not a a real effect.
3: Well, I must admit that I'm not a hundred percent about the literature, but I know that Ben Jones and his colleagues had a paper out just a couple of months ago uh, where they looked at uh, whether Mate preferences follow the menstrual cycle. So if women really prefer more masculine men when they're ovulating mm. and uh, more or less masculine men when they're not, uh, and they didn't find any evidence to support that. Mm. And then you have to remember that most of the studies that they are replicating, uh, were much worse designed and had smaller samples and stuff like that.
1: Wow, that's interesting. And yeah, I mean the the yeah. hormonal congruency hypothesis that your study tested relies on these findings being real. Absolutely. That there is so some, the some these effect studies of the hormones.
3: Undermined, right. uh, so even if we hadn't done this replication study, mm-hmm. the hormonal uh, contraceptive congruency hypothesis would have been undermined by these other findings
1: right right but but there's so much data I mean there's so many studies on these shifts ovulatory shifts uh, in yes. terms of women's behavior in terms of uh, women's preferences. Do you think it's possible that some of – because some of those shifts are about kind of sex drive and how interested they are in casual sex or something like that versus yes. the specific characteristics of the men that they're attracted to, like the dominance and, and masculinity. Do you think it's possible yes. that some of those are still actual real effects, like the sex drive stuff and, and well, the mate preferences? Uh-huh. Is the well, only possibly, one. possibly,
3: uh, but in any case, so we had a paper on that a few years back in psych science as well. So we looked at it was social sexual orientation mm-hmm. and the phase of the menstrual cycle and mm-hmm. something else. I mean, these uh, usual suspects that are uh, touted out when you uh, try to explain women's mate preferences. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, also did a twin study. So we mm-hmm. uh, just looked at what's the heritability of women's mate preferences. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out that, uh, so genes actually explain much, much more of, uh, women's mate preferences than the combined effect of all these things, such as social sexuality or menstrual cycle phase in terms of, uh, their preferences for facial masculinity.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So if there is an effect that's, um, uh, Vanishingly small,
1: mm. but sociosexuality has a high heritability component itself. So, so that that's partly genetic as well, right?
3: Yes, but, yeah. but everything is right. So. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, the, the, the hormonal shifts supposedly are not right. We're we're talking about active effect of of shifts in the hormones. So that would be, I think, separate from the heritability stuff.
3: Yeah, but it's just uh, a comparison that how much. Uh, of the phenomenon of facial masculinity preference. Can you explain by mm. correlating it to, for example, social sexuality? Right, right, And then the answer is just a tiny, tiny fraction, mm. if that, right. but if you look at genes, uh, and then ask yourself the same question, then the answer is a uh, quite a lot more. <laughs> right, right. They are sexy hypotheses and kind of good <laughs> ideas. And nobody can know before you test it Mm -hmm. how well that's going to work out. Uh, But I think the evidence is pretty solid that the effects are minuscule at best.
1: Yeah, for these hormonal shifts in particular. And I don't think anyone ever expected that they would be larger, that anyone should interpret them, even if they are real, that they would be massive. Because otherwise, if these effects were massive, then women would have very, very different behavior when they were ovulating than when they weren't ovulating. And we're not seeing that right? It's not like all of a sudden, yeah, your, your and personality I mean, completely changes. And <laughs>
3: right. Yeah. And that's not to say that I think probably most women would testify to the uh, experience of how different you fe- can feel in different phases of the menstrual cycle. Mm. Uh, and that you can have a subjective perception that your preference would say you're much more irritable in some phase and, and whatnot. Mm. So I think the Experiences of an individual woman can be quite dramatic mm. in different phases or as the ovulatory cycle shifts. Uh, right, right. It just doesn't apply to mate preferences all that much.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. one thing to be, say, more irritable or yeah. cranky or, you know, something like that versus or cry more versus You know, all of a sudden, when you were not ovulating, you were attracted to these very feminine-looking men, soft, sweet, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you you come into that three, four, five-day period of ovulation, and you're like, "Give me all the, you know, whatever." Yeah,
3: I think just it could be about kind of that you want sex more when Mm -hmm.
2: uh, you're ovulating. uh,
3: Yeah, exactly. Or typically you would, you would not have PMS, you would not have period pain, so you would feel better. Mm. Uh, And when you're more interested in sex, you also, so there's actually a robust effect that women are kind of more interested in male bodies Mm -hmm. when they're ovulating than when they're not ovulating.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And then say during your period, you might not be interested in or as interested in having sex. Mm. And then you're kind of preference for any guy would just be less. Lower, right, right. Yeah.
1: Fascinating stuff. Patrick, thank you so much for being on the Science of Sex podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Fun fact, Dr. Jana, that's yes. the first Finnish person I've ever spoken to. No. Never met a Finnish person in no, my life. No, nope. that's... What? No. How
1: where is it would, possible? Where would I meet Finnish people in New York City. There are people from all over the the world in nope. New York City.
0: Never met a Finnish one.
1: Well, that's because you live in Jersey. No,
0: okay. but I've, okay. hello, I've been worked in I've worked in Midtown Manhattan for <laughs> twenty years, so I've never ran into a Finn person. Wow. They seem nice.
1: They, they seem, <laughs> some of them are nice, some of them are not so nice.
0: I can uh, I can attest to Patrick as being a good good Finn. Right? They're called Finns?
1: Yeah, except that he's a Swedish Finn. Finn. Yes. Apparently there is a sizable minority of Swedes living in Finland, and he's one of them. All right, cool. That's what we learned before, before we started recording.
0: Oh, yes, right. was, we did right. a deep dive into Finnish little... uh, history and such. Yes. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, do we, We're we not speaking to a Finn next week, right?
1: We're not speaking to a Finn. We're speaking to an American. Oh, okay. To an American we've been trying to speak to yeah. for months now. Yeah. And for one reason or another, we have not managed to get her on the show. So I'm cautiously optimistic yes. that we're going to get her on the okay. show next week. Okay. <laughs> and that's Dr. Amy Morris. Who's going to be talking to us about a favorite topic of mine. Uh-oh. Consensual non-monogamy. Oh. Uh-huh. Is that something uh-huh.
0: you're into?
2: Hey, okay, <laughs> I talk about it. Slightly. I, mean, I
1: give talks about it sure. all the damn time. Okay. But most of the time, the research that I cite in my talks comes from Dr. Amy Moore. Oh, so you And her collaborators. Her. No. No, I <laughs> I'm not plagiarizing her. I'm just sharing okay. the results. From her studies and the studies of of her collaborators. So I am super, super excited to have her on the show next time. It sounds like you guys
0: are tight. Hofe- yeah. you know, hopefully you, get, you let me in there a little bit let me chat a little bit
1: a little bit because sometimes when you get your friends
0: on I feel uh-huh. like I'm like the third wheel on a dinner date or something like that but...
1: we, tr- we do our best to yeah. include you yeah I know you do don't
0: we yeah you do alright so if you <laughs> enjoy the podcast if you listen to us on iTunes make sure you rate and review us give us a bunch of stars I think five's the maximum if you try mm-hmm. to give more go for it do that uh, and if you ever want
1: a recap
0: of said uh, mm-hmm. interviews or, or topics we discuss.
1: Or links to the papers that we're discussing, or you want to find out more about the guests that we have on the show and how to find them, go on drjana.com and look up the blog post for this episode. We do all of that. Well, thanks to Corey, our lovely assistant, who puts it all together. Yeah. Oh, and we should give a shout out to Corey. Congratulations. She just graduated from NYU. She did just graduate yeah. from NYU. Oh, and she also started... Oh, I, I, I did want to share about this and I completely forgot. I'm glad I know. remembered. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> you for bringing it up. But Corey and her boyfriend, Max, they're launching a campaign, a program, I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but they feel very passionately that men need to be taught how to be better flirters Mm. out there and kind of understand where women are coming from when they're being flirted with all the time and the ways to do it better. So they're going to be doing a series of events that people can join. Uh, The company is called Eros and Psyche Mm -hmm. and we'll put a little link to their stuff on the blog and just check it out cool
0: so Dr. (laughs) Jana, I will see you
1: next time yes see you next time bye Bye. The
0: Science of Sex is produced in New York City to connect with Dr. Jana and Joe follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod
2: subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast this has been The Science of Sex